Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Jeff Jensen, former TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. And I'm Darren Franich, current TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. That's right. The good critic's in the lodge and can't get out. The new critic has emerged. He's got longer hair. He's driving all around the country. Yes. Looking for coordinates, Jeff. Looking for coordinates. That's what I'm looking for. Coordinates to to, to what? <laughs> what? What is the new critic of Entertainment Weekly looking coordinates for? Uh, great question. Uh, perhaps an answer we will arrive at in this very special bonus episode. We thought we were done, we, Jeff. We, we were out. We were out. We were out. Much like Twin Peaks, we thought we were finished. And we got pulled back in. <laughs> we got pulled back in. As promised, as we promised so many people on Twitter, we're going to be talking today about Twin Peaks. The Final Dossier by Mark Frost, which answers some questions, question mark? Maybe a lot of questions. Maybe a lot of questions, but also opens up new questions, which I like a lot. Mm. But Jeff, what have you been doing vis-a-vis Twin Peaks recently? You told me, you texted me that you've been going back and watching some earlier episodes from this season, right? Are, are, is there any any particular order, or are you just kind of like diving back in, seeing what new fantastical elements you're, you're noticing on this rewatch? Well, before I answer that question, can we just be a little meta for a second? This is the first podcast we've ever done face-to-face. God, is that we true? Are, we are in the same room together for the first time. <laughs> Like other podcasts that we did, I was in my house. I'm now a guest in your lovely home, so thank you. Thank you for following the coordinates that I gave you to to, to arrive here. So I got to answer that question, why did I start dipping back into Twin Peaks in the context of this book? And I have very complicated feelings about this book, Darren. Not surprised. Um, And the first time I read it, like I can't deny I was entertained, but I also regretted it. In the sense of like, there were things that I learned that I realized I didn't want to know the answers to those mysteries. Mm-hmm. And even some answers that frankly initially struck me as, oh, I don't like that at all. And I wondered, worried, even maybe believed that it then like diminished my experience. Like, oh, if like that's what the show was about, then I don't know if I like it as much. So that was the idea I was kicking around in my head. And then I decided, let's test that theory by actually just watching some random episodes. And I dipped into a bunch of couple of different ones, and, and especially the end. And maybe we'll probably talk mostly about the end in our conversation today. And I was like, no, no, this book does not ruin anything. <laughs> because like, yeah, it offers a point of view. You could say it offers answers from the point of view of one of the show's two authors. But rewatching particularly the last two episodes, just what Lynch does, the show survives as a filmmaking experience and just the mystery of it all, the weirdness of it all. I didn't think about the book at all, to be honest with you. Um, I was just captivated anew and even maybe more so in the Lynch experience of, of Twin Peaks. So, and then I reread the book again. Or maybe just did a very in-depth skim and liked it even more than the second time around and just accepted it more as a thing that Mark Frost wrote. Yeah, I mean, like uh, my experience of it was similar to yours, um, much like with The Secret History of Twin Peaks. I just love it a lot as 
to me, an essential artifact of the Twin Peaks experience. You know, it's easy enough for us to say, what does David Lynch bring to this? Because he's a director and we recognize his style so well, um, even when, as throughout this season of Twin Peaks, he did stuff that I had never expected he would do and had never seen coming. But uh, I just think it's great to get to see what Frost cares about, what he cares about enough to focus on. I also think that some of the stuff we'll talk about later as far as the ending it's kind of just fun to see in the wake of the ending you and I sort of talked about what we saw and many other people on the internet and many Twin Peaks scholars talked about that you know great to have a front row seat next to Mark Frost trying to I think kind of explain what we saw (laughs) and his his explanation of it it can be frustrating it can be you know maybe too straightforward, but also not seem to work in every element of data. But also, frankly, all my theories were that way, and his are really interesting, and I love that they're embedded in his love of Twin Peaks and his love of what he loves about Twin Peaks. And definitely, as you said, just interesting to see the stuff that he focuses on that he clearly values. I just love that I feel like now I have greater insight into what was that collaboration like between him and David Lynch? What are the elements that Frost felt were so key and how did Lynch as a filmmaker like sort of adapt those to me first and foremost I love so much that this book it kind of offers what seems to be this totally essential missing element of Twin Peaks in the modern day which is the penitentiary and the idea that this new penitentiary that has opened there (laughs) that was built on Ghostwood Forest which was land that was so important in the original I believe there's a whole quote about like after the penitentiary came uh, there was a sharp rise in medical issues and alcoholism and just seemingly everything that we saw that had gone wrong in the town of Twin Peaks Mm -hmm. it makes so much sense to me that Frost who, by the way, is a wonderfully hardcore liberal, and I love that the penitentiary is his way of sticking it to the private penitentiary system. (laughs) makes total sense to me that he conceived of that and said, like, this is a real-world reason why a town could go wrong. And it makes equal sense to me that Lynch was like, I love everything about that except for that explanation. (laughs) Right. I, yeah, I, lo- yeah, I love yeah. everything about that scene setting. Yeah. We will never talk about the penitentiary. Like I just that sort of back and forth to me is what it's, it's what I like about reading it is sort of experiencing it very much in the context of the show itself, yeah. which has only gotten better as we've sort of had more time to sit back and think about it. Yeah. Another general thought that I had is that it was very easy for us when we talked through Twin Peaks, and it's very easy for anyone to kind of watch that show and just think about it solely as a thing that David Lynch, Lynch made. Lynch, right. Lynchian, Lynchian, Lynch. that's right. <laughs> but reading this book in light of the TV show experience that we had, really gaining an appreciation for clearly what Mark Frost brought to it and the ideas, the structure, the storytelling, the characters. Yeah, so I appreciated the book for that on, on one level. And I talked about this book with you, with some other Twin Peaks fans too. You know, the usual thing that we get from showrunners after a TV show that ends with ambiguity is for them to stay on the sidelines and to say, I'm not going to tell you what it means. Yeah, I want to chase. Yes. Yeah. I want to protect your experience. I don't want to, you know, fill your heads with my own thoughts and my own interpretation. And, you know, it's it, interpret it. Like your interpretation is more important than me saying something. And, and you know what? I agree with that. If I was a showrunner, I would do the same thing. And I, and I respect that perspective. At the same time, after reading this book, I kind of thought it was at the very least refreshing that a showrunner does the total opposite. (laughs) 
you know, which is like, no, like I wrote this story. I have a freaking point of view on what, what it all meant. Like I'm going to tell you through the construction of this character of, of agent Tammy. So mm-hmm. like, regardless of how I feel, I do find this kind of refreshing that Mark Frost takes a completely different position on these matters that other show. Yeah. And, and within that, you know, you mentioning that Tammy, so Tammy Preston, just broad strokes here. This is very much intended as, I mean, it's technically a sequel. There was some era of kids books where they would publish, maybe I'm wrong here, maybe I dreamed this, but they would publish some like epilogue and you could literally like attach it to the book itself. I almost feel like this book should have Velcro on its cover <laughs> and you should be able to attach it to the secret history because it just feels so much like it's, you know, it's a lot shorter, it's a lot more to the point, it's definitely a lot of stuff that maybe he even wrote for secret history but that didn't make sense to reveal before the season aired. But it does pick up with Tammy Preston after she has kind of concocted all the stuff that we saw her go through in secret history. And after she's done everything that happened to her in Twin Peaks season three, she's now kind of writing this final dossier to Gordon Cole. I like the meta idea that this is also like Frost kind of sent this to David Lynch at some point (laughs) and was like, what do you, what do you think? And maybe he got a response and maybe he didn't. Um, But she's kind of writing all of this and even right there from the start, Frost's Tammy is so different from the show's Tammy. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And that's that's part of the fun of it. To me, she's a little bit more talkative. She's much more conversational. Just her voice is so different from what Krista Bell was on the show itself. So right, right off the bat, I'm just like, this is so great. It's almost weird to have a return to that character's voice from Secret History yes. from before we met right. her in the show, you know? Well, let's just start with that. Like the premise of the book, which I thought was interesting, is this whole idea that immediately after the events of the finale, apparently Gordon Cole got on a plane and went back to Philadelphia. <laughs> Which I thought, no sentimentality, no kind of like, I'm going to look in on on Harry Truman or visit some old friends, see what Shelly's up to, because he had a big crush on her. No, just like, I'm getting on a plane and going back to Philadelphia, and Tammy, you stay behind and interview the townspeople and mop up here and send me your report <laughs> with your thoughts. And I've got I've got a bottle of Bordeaux and a lady friend waiting for me back in Philadelphia. Right. So the book begins with this memorandum uh, from, from Tammy to Gordon Cole explaining the premise of the book. And then it goes into this autopsy of Leo Johnson, <laughs> which is uh, performed by Albert Rosenfeld. And I love how Mark Frost completely captures Albert's voice on the page here. Mm-hmm. This is a very entertaining read. Uh, also, and- great, great to have final confirmation because I was always kind of worried. Like, I don't know, like, has Leo survived in the woods all this time? Like, uh, you know, is is Leo the drunk is a question that I just thought of. He was not. Leo definitely died at the end of season two. So here's some sample of Albert's writing. (laughs) By the way, forgive the stains on this page, writing this as I enjoy yet another delicious and oh-so-flaky chicken pot pie, third night in a row, from that same local quarter-star bistro, the greasy spoon you keep raving about with the pie and the coffee. Pardon me, Gordon, but on the whole, to quote William Claude Duncanfield, I'd rather be in Philadelphia where you are undoubtedly luxuriating at this very moment in your silk smoking jacket, enjoying a fruity French Bordeaux with another one of your imported quote-unquote nieces. (laughs) 
torches. Oh, God. You can, like, hear Miguel Ferrer just, totally. like, saying those words. Yeah. <laughs> but it is like Mark Frost, you know, having fun with the character of Gordon Cole and and, and reminding us, of, and, and maybe even poking at David, too. So that's. I also of- sort of like to talk about Voices from Beyond. This sort of portion of it ends with Albert sort of writing that given the nonstop body count here in Twin Peaks recently, Renault Brothers, Leo Johnson, I brought this trend up to Sheriff Harry Truman, who replied, well, makes my job a whole lot easier. I read that and I saw like Harry Truman circa 1989, uh, right? Yeah. Like, I, I think that sort of is part of the fun of it. But then we get into, here's the first interesting bit of potential divergence. Shelley Johnson has a chapter. Yes. Interesting to read up on her. So the book is structured in a way where from this point forward, each individual chapter is like a dossier about a character or something. Yeah. Yeah. A, so we begin with Shelley Johnson. Yeah. Um, now, what's interesting in this, interesting sort of like biographical stuff is added for each of these people. Now, were you kind of intrigued, though, we hear a lot about Shelley and ultimately kind of getting together with Bobby. And even there's this sort of really kind of adorable moment that we're left on with them, you know, getting married and having a kid almost immediately. That kid, of course, will grow up to be Amanda Seyfried. There's no real mention in this book anywhere of their divorce. That's right. Which made me wonder, I mean, A, maybe just not an interesting fact for Mark Frost. But then I was kind of like, was that a new addition that Lynch just came up with on the fly? Like, because if so, that would be fascinating. I mean, again, there's a little bit of criminology going on here, but it's interesting that like Bobby Briggs is sort of someone who's less present in this book than than you might think. I had uh, those questions as I read it through, given some some omissions, some things that we know about the show that the book doesn't address, like, like the divorce. There's also a couple things. I don't know if there are more than a couple things that are completely at odds with the show oh, that we yeah. saw. Oh, yeah. And uh, we could talk about that as we go. But yeah. like, yeah, so Mark has said in interviews that he essentially wrote this book over the first six months of this year. So it did kind of make me wonder, like, was he going off of the scripts that they wrote, not the final cuts? I had those questions. Yeah, but let's talk about, there's a chapter in here on Horns and Haywards. Should we move to the Audrey portion? Is that? Yes. Okay. Okay. So, yes. So we learn a lot about Audrey in this. I mean, so much. Uh, You had sort of texted me, so happy that I still sometimes wake up in the morning to long texts about Twin Peaks. Mark (laughs) Frost had sort of given an interview attached to this book where he talked a little bit about what was originally going to happen with Audrey and how she originally, I believe he had said, would have been in the town of Twin Peaks running a hair salon. Not sure he went too far into explaining the overall art for her, but it seems as if she would have kind of interacted with Richard, her awful son, in a way that was somewhat similar to how her mother wound up interacting with him, like perhaps some violent abuse. Um, And it sounds as if just while filming, Lynch came up with the Audrey sequences that we had, which to me, in my memory, those loom maybe larger than almost anything else in the show besides besides the stuff with like the various Dale Coopers. So here we get her in the hair salon. Yeah. What was your feeling about the Audrey of the final dossier? Sad. You know, I mean, like, so, so, (laughs) so. If, uh, she wasn't having like a nice dream the whole time from which she awoke like Mario at the end of Super Mario Brothers 2. She was this is if if we take this as fact, all of our worst 
uh, notions of what was going on with her in season three are correct. Right. So like what we essentially learned and correct me if I'm wrong um, from from the dossier here is that all your theories about Audrey are true. Every Audrey theory is true. Like, you know, she had this child. Mr. C raped her while she was in the coma, gave birth to Richard. Um, she emerged from that coma. She tried to raise the child. It was a difficult experience. She started this hair salon. She ended up abruptly, weirdly, out of the blue, much to the surprise of everyone, marrying her financial advisor. (laughs) So if you kind of left Twin Peaks The Return and thought, oh, all that stuff with her husband, like that was all in her head or a fantasy. No, she really married that guy. They were really married and it was not a good marriage, not a happy marriage. And she cheated on him. She did a lot of self-destructive things, whatever. And then it turns out that kind of equally abruptly sometime in the marriage, she had some kind of mental breakdown and had to be institutionalized. And so the answer is, is that, yeah, like in that great scene where Audrey did Audrey's dance. And then all of a sudden we abruptly cut to that scene where she's in that white room looking in a mirror. And we thought that maybe like what was all that about? Well, she was institutionalized. So like I said, all your theories about Audrey are true. And it's a bummer. It's a bummer, (laughs) yes. So like all of that apparently was in her head, but all of what was in her head happened, you you could say. I mean, what I was really intrigued by with this, I have my own personal, like somewhat unified uh, Audrey theory, which is that she dreamed the dream that Agent Cooper was having. So she is the only real person in Twin Peaks season three. At me, let me know what you think of that. Um, But (laughs) what I was intrigued about... I, I like the idea of Frost being just so blunt with this. Yes. So blunt with something that was so clearly within the context of the show meant to be this gigantic. And we talked about almost the symbolic within the show nature of the Audrey scenes. You know, you would sort of bring up how this sort of constant about to leave, about to cross the threshold, not crossing the threshold. That all seemed to really reflect the show itself and this sense of like, we want to tarry here for a while longer. Why can't it all be about Dougie having fun in Las Vegas? And so, you know, to see Frost kind of take the rough outline of that and say, no, this is what happened. Interesting. To me, my follow-up would be, but within the context of the show, so is she at Ghostwood, but then she's having a fantasy about being with her husband who's an accountant, and is that, you know, to me, there are still enough open questions there that I'm not sure I take this as gospel. Yeah, okay. Um, maybe okay. because it's just so depressing. So my, 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 my brain is running to alternate reality theories now. <laughs> well, and we should be, we should probably note what Frost has said, I believe, and I think in the spirit in which this book should be taken, which is that this is being written rigorously through Tammy's point of view. And so mm-hmm. these are her theories. So a, a huge question that I had reading this book is how much is Frost using Tammy to put his own interpretations or his own answers out there? And how much is he really writing the character of Tammy? And like, these are the kinds of theories that she would have. Right. I would say that the double-edged sort of this bluntness that you speak of um, for me is 
again, refreshing that it's just so explicit and direct and blunt. This is what happened to Audrey. That said, that all that bluntness did for me shut down the part of the Twin Peaks experience that I love so much, which is interpreting and speculating and theorizing. So it's interesting to hear you say that you had theories reading this book. <laughs> I did not. You know, like I read this and like, oh, okay, this is what Tammy thinks, or right. this is what I think that Mark Frost wants me to think. And I'm not dreaming into this text, or this is a book that seems to be about narrowing possibilities instead of expanding possibilities. Yes, with with one I, notable exception, but yes. Yeah, yes. and again, there's something refreshing about that. Yeah. Again, like I don't begrudge him for doing this, but also not what I want from Twin Peaks yes. either. Well, for me, it was kind of a matter of cherry picking to quote uh, Lost Highway. I'm going to choose to remember this. <laughs> What's the line? I'm going to choose to remember things the way I want to remember them, but not how like a videotape. Uh, I'm going to choose remember. to remember that line the way that you just said it. Yes, exactly right. As, <laughs> as stumbling and elliptical as it could possibly be. Uh, I have chosen to decide that Audrey and Diane Selwood and whatever Laura Dern's name is in Inland Empire, they are all now floating consciences untapped tethered throughout dream and realities and they'll all meet up in the upcoming crossover film that Lynch is hopefully working on. That's what I'm crossing my fingers for. Uh, Okay. I want to see that crisis on infinite Lynch's. Um, (laughs) One thing I will say though, Jeff is, and I say this with all love, I felt so strongly reading this book that Mark Frost is a super cool kind of older guy who I want to hang out with. He seemed to have a lot of love for your Jerry Horns, a lot of love for certainly your Dr. Amps. Those sequences to me felt like they were sort of the most, almost like here is a guy of a certain age bringing this cast of characters through all the big events of the boomer era. And you did feel... Things were a little different when, the, when it came to some of the younger characters. Uh, the, the next chapter on from the Horns and the Haywards is about Donna. I came to this really intrigued because, of course, Donna was such a huge part of the original show. And Lara Flynn Boyle sort of most infamously seemed to have had a major falling out with all involved with Twin Peaks. Or at least she was definitely the one who was most egregiously not a part of the new season. Yeah. And th- there was a sense of, to me... I don't want to say sour grapes with the treatment of Donna, but just, mm. just a feeling of like, oh, like, I sort of recall maybe Damon talking about this when he guessed it, but the feeling of his feeling of like, that's not the Audrey I remember. I, I had that feeling with the Donna chapter in this book. You know what I mean? Like, she goes off to New York, has a career, becomes a socialite, falls into Donald Trump's orbit. Like, there's just bits like that where I was like, ah, I don't know, that doesn't quite seem to line up with the character who I remember, who admittedly was played by two different actresses in very different ways across the movie and the the original series. Yes. Um, <laughs> you, you said a number of things there that like, that got me thinking about the book and we have to talk about some of the other Donald Trump cameos in this book, <laughs> including the fact that apparently he is also a current possessor of a green ring or was at one point. Um, um, but I would say that the Donna Hayward chapter, which is like, I guess what the third chapter here mm-hmm. in this book was the first moment when I was reading this book where I kind of went, Ooh, interesting. Yeah. Like the Shelley stuff was okay. The first time I read, I kind of skipped over the Leo Johnson, like autopsy report. <laughs> just gotta be honest with you. Like, uh, like Leo wasn't part of the season. 
for me, the first read was so mercenary about like, okay, I want to see what Mark Frost has to say about the big <laughs> mysteries of the show. And so the Shelley stuff was okay. Okay. So then the Audrey stuff I read with interest, like, okay, how is he going to clarify with this? But then when we got to Don, it was like, this is where I find the book really valuable and where the book comes to life because in the sense of like, okay, Donna was not a character that we heard about in the show. And so the fact that he's going to use this book to tell you a story about Donna Hayward, I like that. Mm-hmm. Like, I felt like that was a good use of this book in a way. Does that make and, sense? Oh, totally. Another fun thing about this is Frost just getting to do all the narrative settings and milieus that he wants to. You were kind of into like, she's like kind of said to be like a fresh face of the 90s. And then like, you know, the next thing you know, she's like a big New York sort of late 90s, early 2000s, like yeah. hanging out Long Island, like socialite, like. Like you were sort of into that aspect. Well, of it well, all, well, no, no, well, well, let, let me let me rephrase. It's not that I really liked what we found out about Donna. It was just in terms of it kind oh, of activated your your brain a little bit more. Yeah, well. and like here for me, the book is doing something that the show didn't do at all, which was the author of the series is telling you a story about a character that's important to longtime Twin Peaks fans that wasn't covered in the show at all, and so. I was very curious to read this chapter. So in terms of what we got, basically she ends up leaving Twin Peaks and becomes a model actress. Yeah, it all kind of goes back to the fallout from the revelation at the end of season two. Oh, yes, okay. That her real father is Ben Horn. So that seems to have split the Hayworths asunder, essentially. Yeah, and I was... Okay, so let's back up a piece there. So yes... This book resolves that big cliffhanger from the end of season two when Ben comes into the Hayward home and puts forth revelations and makes claims that were always supposed to be kept a secret. And Ben, why are you doing this? And so ultimately revealing that Donna Hayward is his daughter. But were you surprised to learn that the Hayward family essentially completely disintegrated as a result of this? Yes, because in my memory, the mother and father were two of the more like rock solid portrayals of parenthood in the Twin Peaks ecosystem. So why do you think they fell apart like that, though? I mean, I understand that Donna at the end of like, it's a good idea. I think that we find out that essentially Donna, after the madness of the original Twin Peaks says, screw it, I'm out of Twin (laughs) Peaks. Good call. Good call, Donna. Yeah, I completely (laughs) got that. But why did Doc Hayward and his wife have to divorce? Because it seemed as if they knew about, I mean, this was not a revelation to Doc Hayward in season two. I don't think. I don't right? think like, so. He was yeah. aware of it. I'm I'm not quite sure. I was sort of wondering if was that maybe some notion that Frost had about season three that we would sort of see, like having seen the Palmer family and and sort of how in a, in a distant way the show followed their complete dissolution. Would we now kind of see that happening in real time in a in a theoretical 1992 season three? You know, would you sort of see the family like this revelation comes out? The daughter is just feels so betrayed, and somehow that extends to the parents. Not sure. It seemed like there was so sort of like a little bit of like plot elision going well, on. Well, <laughs> I guess maybe thematically. I mean, we remember now that divorce and fragmentation were huge recurring motifs in the show, like breakups and with very few get-togethers, right? And so. I I guess thematically, he's just working this idea that Twin Peaks in the past 25 years has 
it's grown in some ways and prospered in some ways, but other ways it's kind of like gotten corrupt and yeah. kind of fallen apart. And the legacy of Mr. C's evil and, and agent Cooper's failure and a penitentiary it, and, a, and a penitentiary penitentiary is just ruin everything. <laughs> um, like these developments kind of introduce a kind of spiritual cancer disease that is infecting everything and causes everything to fall apart. And this is just one way that in which that is being expressed. And, I just didn't quite buy it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It, so. seemed, it seemed foreign to our understanding of who the Haywards were. I think yes. I called, I, sorry, I think I called them Haywards earlier. Who the Haywards were as characters. That said, something you're talking about with the sort of splintering and the rarity of connections. With Donna Hayward, you get to the end of her story here. You yes. Know, dr- drug abuse, but then sort of recovery. She does ultimately make peace with her father. And I think we're almost kind of meant to think that that one great appearance of Doc Hayward in season three that we got via Skype. It's almost kind of like now I'm picturing Donna being like right off screen inside, pouring him some milk or something like like they, they are meant to be sort of reunited somehow. Right. So the idea there is that after all of her adventures in the big city and uh, becoming a model and then getting involved with drugs and then like being a socialite, blah, blah, blah. She ends up reconnecting with her father after 20 years of not talking with him and has been his caretaker ever since in his retirement and, and is and is very active as a sponsor in the local twelve step community. You know yes. what? Donna turned out okay. Yes. Is something we can say about her. And we can't say that about most members of her generation of Twin Peaks citizens, including this is where my interest really perked up. Gersten Hayward is almost as big a part of that chapter as her sister is. We of course saw her reappear in season three of Twin Peaks in the return, where we last saw her, that awesome scene. She was sleeping with Steven, who was the the husband of Becky, the daughter of the Briggses. Uh, Stephen blew his brains out. Gersten was scared. She was in the trees. Um, <laughs> we didn't really see what had happened to Becky. And I certainly felt like nothing good had happened to her. Or at least I felt like that's what we kind of left off on was that shot of Mark Frost himself and Harry Dean Stanton, RIP, kind of looking towards where Stephen and Becky had lived. And just the implication of like, God, is there a dead body in there is there a dead body in all of these open doors um (laughs) but uh in this chapter we do learn that gersten seems to have had a rough life went to college then dropped out came home that's when she got together with steven went to college dropped out had a nervous breakdown went to a psychiatric hospital yes lots of of characters in twin peaks end up in psychiatric facilities well but she was in a bay area psychiatric facility so she was a-okay good point a lot of love for the bay area (laughs) i'm shocked they didn't fix her problem actually she was she was the one person um But uh, this chapter did confirm she seems to have kind of disappeared. Gersten Hayward has disappeared into the wind. But Becky is okay, according to this book. Becky did survive, which I thought was an interesting happy ending. I think that means that the last time we ever see Becky is when she's calling up her mom to come to the double R and have a pie. So it turns out that Becky Burnett, the character that we all thought was going to be the new Laura Palmer, <laughs> she turned out okay. She's okay. So there we go. Right. There's and, a bit of optimism. And, Ger- and Gersten disappeared. <laughs> and Gersten disappeared. Okay, yeah, right. sorry, you're right. <laughs> she was the next Laura Palmer all along, it turns out. <laughs> 
<laughs> wow. Wow. Um, let's see. What else do we have here? Ben Horn. Some time spent with him. Frost, I gather, was really interested in the idea if that came out in season two of Ben trying to be a good man. Yes. And, and I'm struck again by the sort of the time the show spent with that struggle in this season and the sort of grace that it gave him. Reading this, I felt like that kind of came a lot from Frost, or at least from his interpretation of the character. Um, and if we have nothing left to say about Ben Horn... Let's dive right into Jerry Horn. Horn. There's a whole chapter devoted to Jerry Horn and a very entertaining chapter. There are three pages on Jerry Horn, which are three more than were given to Diane, uh, who you may recall was the only other major character besides Dale Cooper and some version of Laura Palmer who appeared in the final episode. (laughs) Jerry Horn, we get the full like secret history of him here. A lot of time spent on his almost accidental cornering of the market of marijuana. And so many specific names of strains of marijuana. Listen. Very well-researched chapter. I just want to say, Mark Frost, props to you for this. Us Jerry Horn fanboys want more, quite frankly. <laughs> if you want to do, like, you know, when when Alan Moore did his spinoff of, the, of Captain Nemo's daughter that nobody really cared about. I cared about that, but I really care about the Jerry Horn spinoff. So, like, bring that on if you're so inclined. So the double R stuff. I gotta be honest with you. This is the part where I just kind of started doing some skimming yeah. here. I yeah. mean, but I was very interested in the Annie Blackburn stuff. Yeah. So okay. for everyone who wanted to know whatever happened to Annie. Nothing good. Nothing good. <laughs> this is the most depressing podcast <laughs> we've ever gosh. Well, Thank you, Mark Frost. Speaking of psychiatric down. hospitals, yeah. um, some background here, Jeff. Uh, Annie Blackburn, of course, the character played by Heather Graham, came in at the end of season two, seemingly a love interest for Dale Cooper. One of the things that is just interesting to mention before we get to Annie specifically, a lot of the chapter on Norma kind of focuses on clearing up her sort of background. And I think some of this comes from the fact that in Secret History, it was said that her mother died, but in season two, her mother appears. So some interesting kind of canonical stuff that goes on here where it turns out that woman wasn't her real mother. You're looking confused and I'm confusing myself. So we'll move on to the fact that... Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I didn't mean to give you that face. I realize now that I gave you that face. I've never, now I know what it feels like to be a page that you were skimming over. Is is that is that was the look you just get, oh, this is but interesting. You know, okay, okay. Okay, okay. But it's, I think this, let's take a pause and talk about this for a little bit because I'm imagining that there are people who are listening to the podcast who are steeped in Twin Peaks. And we love you. And, and we love you. And steeped in the first couple seasons of Twin Peaks. And the enormous stuff is probably really essential to them. Yeah. And I'm not saying that I love Norma and I love Norman Ed in this season. And for hardcore Twin Peaks fans, this is cool stuff to know i guess my uh disinterested face that i just gave you um and my confession is skimming kind of speaks a little bit to kind of like just what i wanted from the book or what i was most interested in which was and kind of speaks to some sort of just big picture thoughts about my own twin peaks the return experience which is that ultimately i look back on the twin twin peaks the return as almost a thing unto itself and there was the original series And now having seen season three, quote unquote, or the return, I feel like they're just two separate entertainment experiences and they are bridged by these wonderfully done supplementary materials uh, uh, written by Mark Frost. But 
I love transmedia and I love this expanded world building and even like treating this as canon, you know, mm-hmm. I respect the endeavor, but ultimately its value to me was I want to know what Mark Frost thinks about the return. Mm -hmm. And that's so when I got to chapters where it was like, yeah, this has nothing to do with the return. I skimmed it. Well, I have to imagine also, Jeff, as someone who was taking copious notes and outlining the original run of Twin Peaks, you've had a question on your lips for over a quarter century now. And that question is, how's it? <laughs> how's Annie? That's, that is true. I, yeah. each, I'm sure there's someone out there who each week watching The Return was like, yeah, yeah, this is great and all, but where's Annie? Like, let's get down. Like That, that poor person was waiting for an answer. By golly, they got it, You Jeff. got it. Uh, Annie Blackburn, it turns out, went into the Black Lodge she was taken there by Wyndham Earl. He was dressed up as the log lady. Miss Twin Peaks, the most misunderstood and best plotline ever. We'll, you know, refer back to our season two podcast for more on that. And he came out of the Black Lodge. People who have either seen the missing pieces or are going to get the Twin Peaks Blu-ray can see the last canonical on-screen appearance of Annie. It's in a cut scene from Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, where she's taken to the hospital. Uh, The final dossier picks up with her there and essentially also kind of leaves her there, too. It turns out that she never really came out of the catatonic state that we left her in. Ultimately, we had to be taken care of by Norma. Uh, some interesting kind of continuity stitching here. Like I think Frost kind of uses that as an explanation for why Norma and Ed remain sort of apart for so long that they were just years there of Norma kind of taking care of Annie. Actually, things only got worse for Annie afterwards. Uh, Jeff, what do we kind of pick up with her here? Annie, are you okay? Annie, are you okay? No, you are not okay. You will never be okay ever again. So apparently, thank you. My little Mike, Michael Jackson phonetic reading there. Um, she went to the hospital. She never really recovered from this catatonic state. The book tells us that Norma took care of her, even conducted some fundraisers. The, the whole town of Twin Peaks tried to take care of her, which I thought was actually like oddly touching. Not not oddly touching. It was touching. Like Ben Horn, a surprising major donor to this help. Uh, this effort to to raise funds to deal with her, but she never kind of came out of this state. She kind of improved to some degree. She uh, was able to sit up, able to walk around, but was still rather mentally vacant. And then we get to this rather disturbing uh, portion here. One year to the day after Annie had been found in the woods, Norma came home to find her slumped in a bed in a pool of her own blood, semicolon. Dun, dun, dun! She'd slit her wrists again with the shards of a shattered glass. And as you kind of pointed out to me earlier, again, Annie had a sort of dark history prior to Twin Peaks, coming to Twin Peaks, and struggled with some self-destruction. And now... Apparently going into the the Black Lodge and suffering that discombobulating and disorienting and um, literally dispiriting experience. She's suicidal anew. And so after this attempt to take her own life, which she survived, Norma gets her to the hospital. Uh, Norma decides to do what they do with every mentally broken woman in Twin Peaks. Send her to a psychiatric facility. Um, the God. poor women of Twin Peaks. Oh, which we'll have to talk. We'll talk about as we move forward. This big theme of this show ultimately being about 
just like spiritual sickness. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and women like this sort of story ultimately about this demonic culture that preys on and consumes and destroys women on so many levels. That is an interesting recurring theme of Twin Peaks. And Annie suffers this. So she gets institutionalized and we find out this rather chilling detail, which is that apparently every year on the anniversary of her expulsion from the Black Lodge, she says two words, I'm fine, I'm fine. And it wasn't until we started doing this conversation that it hit me just how chilling that is because the famous last words of the original Twin Peaks series. How's is, Annie? How's Annie? How's like, Annie? Like Mr. C possessed by Bob kind of doing this, mocking the concern about Annie. And so how's Annie? And Annie's responding to that question. Isn't she? I'm fine. So well done, Mark Frost. That was kind of creepy. And like horrifying. Yeah. And to me, this was the one of the couple of times in this book where to kind of counter what you were saying earlier, Jeff, about sort of simplifying things or taking away some of the mystery. We've seen people who want to go to the lodge, the black lodge, the white lodge, whatever you want to call it, for whatever reason, for power, for escape. You have your Windermurls, you have your Cooper doppelgangers, but Annie is someone who went there, not of her own will, left in an equally sort of strange way. And the idea that this is sort of where it leaves her, is she catatonic because her brain is just kind of boiled, like, you know, whenever you see Eleven's mom in Stranger Things and she's just sort of no longer present, is some part of her still in the lodge? Is she actually fine? Is this what fine looks like? I, you know, I would assume not because people who are fine don't try to commit suicide. But I don't know. There's just there's something very haunting about that. Uh, after the Annie Blackburn chapter, Mark Frost doubles down on Lana Milford and has a chapter called Miss Twin Peaks. I admire his devotion to Miss Twin Peaks <laughs> and to Lana Milford, who, of course, was the red haired lady who seemed to keep on marrying people who would die soon afterwards. We picked up a little bit with her in Secret History. There's more fun stuff with her here. I get the fact, I get the idea that Mark Frost really wants to do the spinoff about her that just follows her on sort of these Merry Widow trips throughout Europe and beyond. But uh, that, I, I don't think we needed her in, in season three. I think, I think best left to the canonical material well in mark frost's own words or tammy's own words here in the final final line of the miss twin peaks chapter anyway who cares (laughs) this is tammy writing anyway who cares as my mother used to say trash is trash even if it's in a tiffany bag um but yes i I like frost just like determination to pay out the story on, on on the milfords which I do get is important for him. rather surprising, important for him and emerged surprisingly as a compelling strand of mythology um, in Twin Peaks in these books. Uh, Jeff, I'd love to know how much of this you skimmed. Uh, I was saying earlier that Jerry Horn got an incredible three pages. I think Dr. Jacoby has one, two, three. Three, he has way four, too many pages. I'm five, sorry. Six, seven, way eight, too nine, many pages. Ten. I love it to death. Jacoby, who I at one point certainly thought may have been a stand-in for Lynch in season three, I now completely treat all of that stuff like Mark Frost on-screen alter ego, and I'm very excited that that happened. Wait a minute, though. We must note that within the Jacoby chapter, we get the James Hurley story, Mm -hmm. which um, James doesn't even get his own chapter. He is a paragraph in the Dr. Jacoby short story. (laughs) 
Uh, and what a wait, story wait, 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 it okay. is. And, and you know what? So I did read this part. This was good stuff. This was funny stuff here. Oh, yeah. Because like, you know, and this has been commented on by others, but here part of the humor for longtime Twin Peaks fans is Mark Frost using Tammy to wink at some of uh, of Twin Peaks and particularly some of the bad things about Twin Peaks and including that the disastrous storyline in season two when James got involved in that weird film noir subplots. Yes, yes. Not long afterwards, after being taken in by a predatory older woman outside Portland, Oregon, James stumbled into the role of a hapless patsy in a murder scheme straight out of noted noir novelist James N. Kane. And Tammy notes in a parenthetical, I won't bore you with the details. <laughs> and every Twin Peaks fan says, thank you. Because, I mean, and then that that's funny. I mean, it's just the, the self-awareness there is great. So... But then poor James, poor James, he goes to Mexico, he gets involved with a cocaine cowboy. It's just what? very yes. clear. <laughs> it's just very clear that, I mean, like, you know, if Frost has fun following, like, Lana Milford into almost this sort of, like, Tom Ripley space, like, James just seems like he's trapped in, like, the saddest version of, like, a Dennis Johnson novel. Like, it's just getting, like, crossing the border, getting into trouble there, constantly needs to sort of phone home to get one of the sheriff's Truman to help him out of a jam. Ed Hurley is always helping him, like Big Ed. This is like another thing. Like essentially, if you're wondering why Ed and Norma weren't together yet, it's because they were taking care of their respective like That's relatives. Right. That's basically what was going on for like all he, those he, years. He gets an apartment in Portland. Uncle Ed does in order to be close to James while he's in jail. Like, um, <laughs> can you imagine Big Ed hanging out in Portland? Actually, I want to see. That. Actually, wait, uh, I do. Too. I want to see the Big Ed in Portland miniseries. Maybe somewhere <laughs> in the final series of uh, Portlandia, they could uh, fit him in. But I, I do one thing I do like about this, Jeff, as a huge James Hurley fan, there's this great line that kind of sums him up, which is Tammy sort of saying to Gordon Cole, just as any criminal can be an accessory to a crime, an entirely innocent person close to an act of violence can become a collateral victim. It just seems to me that a part of James died when Laura did, and it's haunted him ever since. Certainly feel that a lot in the new season, even though it's never stated, but you know, him singing that same old song with the weird imitations of women that he once knew long ago. Yeah. That's that's, that's pretty sad. He, he he went to work, so he came back to Twin Peaks ultimately, went to work for Ed at the gas farm, and a few years later he took a second job working night security at the Great Northern. So by day he works at a gas station, by night he's working security at the Great Northern. He lives alone, modestly, drives a used Ford Focus now, no longer riding a motorcycle, <laughs> Our James Dean, those, the James Dean romance is dead. Still plays guitar, writes plaintive, simple, and appealing songs. Unrequited love, heartbreak, and so on. That he sometimes performs locally. And as far as I can tell, has never hurt another human being. He's a good man. He's a, He's good, a good man, man you know? our, our James. Good. Yes. And, and I would That's just true. add, uh, that chapter does end with Ed and Norma getting married. And there's a note that oh, yes. James played a song he wrote on his guitar during a civil ceremony conducted by the big log. Oh, I'd give anything. If there's if there's one scene, I'm, I'm glad we didn't get it, but I wish we could have gotten it. Would have loved to have seen that at the end of Twin Peaks. I would have loved to have seen the wedding of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> log Lady. Log Lady Margaret Coulson. Chapter. Yeah, she gets a long farewell. What did you feel reading that, Jeff? Uh, very lovely. I mean, it was yeah. lovely. It was. It was. It, it kind of brought back. That was one of the most powerful moments of the series: the death of of of, of Margaret Coulson. And uh, I think that uh, it was well. Uh, it was. It was honored here in the book. Okay, should we get serious now? Let's get serious. The double. 
as Tammy calls him slash it. Yes. The Agent Cooper doppelganger. We'll call him Dirty Cooper for for just for just old times time sake. sake. This is the part of the book that I loved the absolute most. This is where she is sort of trying to describe who the double was. And, you know, she goes kind of more in depth on his sort of backstory. We got a little bit of this, this idea that he had this huge criminal organization was basically like a demigod of crime walking on earth. But she also tries to figure out what he was. And what I love about this is, I mean, you know, Frost was there for the inception of it. And I love this idea that it's almost like we're seeing his different ideas about this character all sort of combined all together. Tammy says, you know, we thought he was a tulpa, but what is that exactly? There's this theory about this term called the dweller on the threshold, which Deputy Chief Hawk once said was meant to represent the sum total of all the dark, negative, unresolved qualities that reside in every human being. This idea that this double was very much meant to be the worst elements of Agent Dale Cooper, all incarnated in one person. She also mentions the possibility of him being possessed. It is sort of this wonderful wash of all things, and it brought me back to realizing, wow, I just don't know what the fuck the Agent Cooper doppelganger really was. (laughs) And he was one of the lead characters, and we have argued quite compellingly, I think, maybe the hero of the season. So I I loved that element of that, just the sort of, let's throw it all at the wall and see what sticks nature of trying to get to the core of this character. (laughs) This was the part of the book that reminded me most of a recap that I would write, filled with sort of Wikipedia cold references to mythology and stuff, and then just throwing everything on the page and saying, How to explain it? It could be any of these things or all of them, you know, Um, it evokes all of this. And, uh, you know, I I like that framing and I like the non-committal, what is it? Here are some possibilities. Put this in your brain and let it stir around a little bit. So, so far, so good in this section of the book for me, like, I think ultimately he's playing with a lot of possibilities and ideas that we kicked around. I was just struck by the specificity of some of the mythological references, like <laughs> like that he could be like some Sumerian evil spirit or something like that. That kind of struck me mm-hmm. as like an interesting choice that it would be so specific. Right, right. That to me, and again, this comes back around to what I like about my notion of their collaboration, which might be faulty, is Frost coming in hot with all of these awesome arcane bits and bobs and, you know, this sort of foundation, which Lynch then takes and then perhaps wisely chops off the foundation so you don't quite know where it's all coming from. Liked all that. Uh, what else we got here? We got your Philip Jeffries. Didn't didn't get the strong sense that Frost was super into him. I, I really associate Philip Jeffries with the Lynch of Twin Peaks. Um, and the fact that he had one less page than Jerry Horn seemed to imply to me <laughs> that that was somewhat perfunctory. But Judy does get a whole chapter under herself. Judy, who, of course, <laughs> was maybe the villain of the season, maybe symbolized all the villainy of the season, and who I think was brought up only in part 17, if I'm recalling correctly. Yes. Not sure this sort of explores it anymore, but this is where you were talking about, Jeff. It sort of brought up the Sumerian mythology that dates back to 3000 BC. Um, the idea that Judy was a wandering demon that had escaped from the underworld, which does sound a lot like the experiment being that we saw in the season. Yes. But, you know, we don't have to talk about Judy if, if you don't want to, <laughs> In fact, we're not going to talk about Judy at all. Well, 
it was right about this time, like on page like 112, 113 of the book that I started, I don't know, I'm just having mixed feelings about everything that we're ramping up here toward the end of the book. But to go back to this, there's this interesting summary that Tammy offers about ultimately the, uh, while Cooper's story continued in, in, in part 18, for most of our characters, the story of Twin Peaks, The Return, ended in Sheriff Truman's office in the aftermath of the big fight with Mr. C and Bob and... The Bob Blob. And, and the Bob Blob and the guy with the green glove whose name is... Freddy. Freddy um, and all of that. And then, of course, then from that moment, Cooper then decamps with Cole and Diane to the basement of the Great Northern Hotel. And then he goes on his very strange adventure into the past and parallel dimensions. But this is Tammy's summary of those scenes, which I thought was interesting. We saw what happened at the sheriff's station. This is her writing. There were close to 20 witnesses, including you, me, and Albert. We agreed that we saw more or less the same thing. At the moment of its death, something appeared to rise up out of the double and disappear. Something not Cooper. And we know that no sooner had Cooper appeared to defeat this dot, 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 whatever it was, dot, 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 that he almost immediately appeared at the location of the coordinates that his damn double was after from the start. And you went with him, chief. And from there, Cooper promptly disappeared again and hasn't been uh, seen since. And Cooper's former assistant, the real Diane, who had just appeared out of nowhere in a downstairs holding cell not long before all this happened, disappeared right along with him. Do I need to revisit the false or tulpa Diane that we all saw die in a Buckhorn motel room a few days earlier when she pulled a gun on the three of us? I mean, honestly, are they cranking out these duplicate creatures in an alternate reality Kinko's with some kind of Lovecraftian 3D printer? Pardon my French for a second, Chief, but what the fuck? Um, I do like this Tammy sometimes. (laughs) You described to me what happened when you left with Cooper. The lights went out in the sheriff's station. I was there for that part. You somehow found yourself in the basement of the Great Northern Hotel with Cooper. Something then opened up in a boiler room in the basement of the Great Northern, which you described as an endless corridor. You exchanged parting words. Cooper entered into it. This corridor shortly thereafter closed. Cooper was gone. You were back in what appeared to be, as far as you could determine by any other measure, an ordinary boiler room. And what I found interesting about that summary is that's not exactly what we saw on screen, right? No. Um, there is a key fact missing there, which is that Diane, first of all, a little bit of fudging here as far as Diane's appearance, the real Diane's appearance. Um, I mean, maybe Tammy just didn't notice that she happened to be a totally different woman with no eyes uh, before she appeared. But Diane, of course, went to the basement of the Great Northern with Gordon and Dale, was there to sort of wish him well. To thoughts on this perhaps we are meant to think in a really deep way like did gordon not tell her that is gordon keeping secrets as well does he know more than he's telling his subordinate always a possibility cross-reference all the times that gordon doesn't tell people things that might be important i.e judy but this also brings up the possibility of is this Frost kind of working from an earlier version of the ending where it was just Gordon and Dale going to that threshold, which to me, this makes sense to me mentally. 
that Lynch was just like, oh no, like Diane should be there because Laura should be there because the three of us, there's some iconography there that goes beyond where the story seemed to be on the page. But what, what do you make of that illusion of that sort of seeming radical reality glitch from what we saw on screen? Yeah, I mean, um, first of all, I just got to say the writing in this section, I enjoyed um, Frost perhaps taking almost the through Tammy taking the role of maybe the viewer and kind of commenting on the craziness of those final two hours and literally like what the fuck yeah you know um, can Tammy write a dossier for the rabbit stuff that Lynch did too <laughs> like I would read Tammy's dossier on all kinds of Lynchian stuff if yes. she's interested <laughs> um uh so that said I was, yeah, struck by the fact that she's describing things in a way that I didn't experience on the show. And I didn't know whether to be intrigued by that as if that was meaningful or if that was just literally a continuity error. And if so, then kind of subverts to some degree the meaning and value of this book for those curious for clarifications about what happened and kind of maybe then speaks to the, just the peculiar authorship relationship Mark and David have with this whole show. Totally. Stuff. So again, I don't know whether to be intrigued and theorize about this or kind of say, this is clearly some kind of error taking place. here. Yeah. Or I mean, what I just feel so strongly is Diane slash Laura Dern to me, is just such a totem in the season. But besides the fact that great performance, great character, and all that, that is a totem for Lynchianhood. You know what I mean? And it makes sense to me that there's no Diane chapter here. That, yeah. that she's a distant figure in Tammy's view, in Frost's view. On one hand, I feel like so much of what Frost has said about this book and so much of what he's written in this, I, I do want to kind of back away from my initial notion that everything that happens in the last 80 minutes is all Lynch. I feel like like that was a notion that was put out there was like, oh, well, Frost got his ending and then Lynch did all that other wacky stuff. I don't think that's true. No. I, I think it's very important to make it clear that Frost has a vision of that ending. Uh, it's just a little different than maybe what uh, the ending that we saw well, was. And, <laughs> and, and so what, what the book makes very clear and provocative, I think, is that where I think that Mark and David were obviously co-authoring together is this rather... This this view of Cooper as a fallen hero and Frost's characterization of Cooper in this book, he's drawing a lot from another sort of ancillary text, the uh, the secret autobiography of Agent Cooper that was written back during the original series, which I really appreciated that Frost embraced his canon here mm-hmm. and is drawing upon that. But in that book, it really establishes a lot of the psychology of Cooper and establishes some things that may not have been totally apparent or played to in this in the original series itself, this idea that Cooper is this virtuous, thoughtful, reflective, cool hero who has this fatal flaw. Mm-hmm. Um, he's obsessed with rescuing fallen, damaged women. This kind of goes back to this peculiar relationship he had with his very troubled mother and a lot of you know, female relationships that he had, his doomed romance with the wife of Wyndham Earl, but this sort of repeating, recurring motif through his life of sort of becoming obsessed and falling for these doomed women and yeah. trying to save them. He sort of specifically refers to the white knight syndrome and this notion of 
rescuing every damsel in distress. And here's where I, I do think that, like, so easy to keep on referring to Frost, but important that this is kind of Tammy saying all this. Yes. This, you know, this younger agent. It didn't quite go this way, but there was that moment of us theorizing before the season started, like, oh, is this Tammy? Is she the new Dale Cooper? This is what we thought the new season was going to be, like, crazy stuff's going on in Twin Peaks and some FBI agent's going to come there and solve it. Like, is this sort of her seeing very clearly his flaws yeah, as yeah, a, yeah. you know, as a woman looking at this from the outside, yes. white knight syndrome, an obligation towards saving women in jeopardy. I love that Frost really focuses on that. And to me, you know, boy, talk about deepening the show. The look on like Agent Cooper's face when he's back in time looking at young Laura and clearly thinking he's saving her. Boy, does that complicate all of that stuff, right? And just sort of give his intentions and his motivations that darker edge that you would hope that you would get from the show, but that really brings it forward here in uh, the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, another thought that I think that Frost has said in interviews, maybe not necessarily stated here in the book, but is, I think you also experience in the book, and I think that you even get a sense of it from the show is this idea that he is said as Cooper, as a guy who exists in a very alienated and complicated and problematic relationship with his dark side, his mm -hmm. dark self. Mm -hmm. And that this dysfunctional kind of relationship with his own dark parts and damaged parts, and the parts that he doesn't like about himself, it gets him in a lot of trouble. And that ultimately any kind of legit hero's journey for him is, is about sort of like, uh, confronting that stuff in him and resigning himself and making peace with that stuff. And uh, I'm suddenly now reminded of the scene in the, in part 18 when he goes to Judy's diner mm -hmm. and that very weird scene and the very weird, it's, it's almost like classic Cooper acting as a hero, but it's in a very weird broken way where you don't know if you like him, like putting the, guns and the deep fryer turning it into a bomb that might blow up this whole what are you thinking Cooper like mm -hmm. so this sort of like heroic impulse taking over and then perhaps making a mess of things you know we, we talked about this in the past this also being a metaphor for the atomic bomb this idea of this 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 thing that was created to save the world but then ultimately has catastrophic consequences this heroic enterprises enterprise that has deadly and horrible, horrible consequences and changes the nature of America and blah, 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 and all of that. Like, I, I, I like thinking about all that stuff. Yes. I'm glad you bring up the bomb, Jeff. Two more big revelations here. Maybe saving the best for the last. Tammy, in the sort of context of this dossier that she's writing, tells Gordon Cole that some interesting things have changed in Twin Peaks. Uh, specifically, the I believe she's looking at microfilm of uh, long-ago newspaper bulletins about the death of Laura Palmer, and suddenly they are referring to the disappearance of Laura Palmer. And I love, I'm sure in your skimming, this is where you know the book was built for the people who would buy it and be like, okay, yes, I'll read it, but first the skim. In bold, on page 132, Mark Frost has, Laura Palmer did not die. Yes. Okay. So here we go to the stuff that we really want to talk about, right? So, so when I went and bought this book, I'll tell you this story, everybody. When I went and bought this book, I walked out of my Barnes & Noble and the first thing I did was ice cut straight to the end <laughs> and read these pages because that's ultimately kind of what I wanted most from this book is I wanted to know from Mark Frost's point of view, 
whether his point of view or at least through the character of Tammy. And again, I'm really glad that you made that really great distinction. He is writing through a character. And so it's her perspective. But how does Frost slash Tammy make sense, talk about, describe those final scenes? And so, yeah, like, did Cooper go back in time and change things or not? So I had my own strongly held positions on that. And so to encounter these bold words, bold-faced words, Laura Palmer did not die and making it very clear that yes, like, so, so this is an interesting scenario that we're sketching here. Tammy's experience of history and her understanding of history is our understanding of Twin Peaks history. But when she starts to go and do some research into past issues of the local Twin Peaks newspaper, she finds that the history that she's been told, the history that she understands, the history that she's just lived out, is not the same as now this recorded history. That in this version of some events, Laura Palmer disappeared. Her body was never found. Agent Cooper comes to town to help look for her because her disappearance might be tied to some other crimes that he's investigating. Sounds like Cooper, according to this new history of events, has most of the same adventures that he had during Twin Peaks, the regular series, but ultimately packed up and left. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure, does the book establish that he still went into the Black Lodge with Annie and came out and all that kind of stuff happened? Um, I don't think so. Let's see. Uh, Cooper comes to town and nothing much beyond that. As soon as I return to the office, says Tammy, I intend to look into whether any of Cooper's files or tapes that are still in our possession support this alternate version of events. So not not totally clear. Are we meant to understand that everything happened the same way, just there was no body? Like, are we meant to understand that in this new world, Mr. C did everything that was said he he had done or in this version of the world did agent cooper just go off and live a different life is there a fifth agent cooper out there that we could add next to the two duggies and dark cooper and classic cooper so when i first read these chat these pages as you know I immediately called you and left you a long message on your voicemail yeah. ranting about like... You were not happy. I was not happy. And I'm not happy because... I wasn't happy because I just don't like the idea that he went back in time and changed history. Yeah. Um, seems too easy. Yeah, it seems too easy. It seems to sort of invalidate... Like in our initial conversation about it a couple months ago when we were processing it, like, you know, I just, I just, I didn't like the idea that he went back in time and invalidated the story and history that we know. And I think that Mark and David could have made all their points about deconstructing Cooper's character and commenting and critiquing on his savior complex and his relationship with women without actually following through on this idea of him changing history. The idea that he just even attempted that. And then the fireman said, no, I'm not going to let you do that. Bad boy. Like, you can't do that. You can't go change time. But like the fact that you even tried to do that says something about your character. And now you have to go and confront some shit. That's how I always kind of interpreted the end. So the idea that, that no, according to what this book is trying to imply, that Cooper went and changed history and now has made a, men- a mess of things, has made a mess of reality. And history itself is now kind of in this weird flux where people like have 
like memory of now two possible histories mm-hmm. and that Cooper as a result of this choice is either living a different life in this world or is lost in another dimension of time. It's yeah. a struggle. It's a it's struggle. A str- yeah. 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 I, so I, I like thinking about all of the amazing different possibilities of what the ending of Twin Peaks meant and could be. But strangely enough, the one possibility that has no appeal to me is that he literally changed history. Right. And one thing that I found interesting about this, you might have mentioned this in your initial voicemail message. It does open up an interesting idea that I want to explore on rewatch. We talked a lot about just the discontinuities within the show, the beautiful discontinuities, the way that time seems to be moving differently for some people. You know, you'd have these occasional very clear head marks as far as like, this is the day where they went to Jackrabbit's Palace or this is the day like here in Las Vegas. But you sort of brought up something that I also thought immediately, which was, were we meant to understand that some of those scenes were in the rebooted reality and some of them were in classic Twin Peaks reality. Like with Sarah Palmer, for instance, uh, which I bring up for a reason, could you watch all those scenes with her and be like, well, this could be the Sarah Palmer we knew in the original season. She's seen her daughter's body. Her husband, you know, goes crazy and, and kills himself. Or this could be Sarah Palmer whose daughter just disappeared and she's been sort of trapped in that state for forever. I found that interesting to think of. And the fact that there's no real way to answer it makes it kind of fun. Like, you know, it almost seems to encourage you to read another reality into whatever shifting layers of imagination were already in season three. I do feel like... The fact that within the show itself, the time travel wasn't clean. I I don't think Carrie Page was Laura Palmer. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that when Dale Cooper was saying, are you Laura Palmer, that she was like, no, I'm Carrie Page. What are you talking about? Like, uh, (laughs) like, you know, like to me, a big part of what I loved about that ending was it was all lined up to be a clear cut flashpoint type time travel but it wasn't that's so lynchian to be like no when you time travel then you come back and your name's richard right that's that's the butterfly effect and so i i feel like there's much more to it than the sort of straightforward way that frost presents it here but also i guess interesting if the purpose of this book is to say laura didn't die but not that much changed (laughs) right maybe that's the most haunting part of this sort of quarter of the twin peaks experiment right laura didn't die but the penitentiary still arrived so (laughs) (laughs) right so i'm hemming and hawing now i just don't know if i find rethinking fun yeah i'm not like i'm not sure i like thinking through the series you pitched the idea here of a rewatch in which if we rewatch the show from the perspective of are we watching the timeline being rebooted right in front of our eyes how much how many scenes like are taking place in a timeline in which laura was killed how many of these scenes are taking place now in a timeline in which Laura just went missing and or is the whole thing really actually telling you the story of a timeline in which Laura just went missing? I I don't find that compelling to me. It seems I, I, more I, fun in theory than in practice. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it turns the show into a, a show about time travel and a time travel twist. I just wanted a story about what happened to these people over the last 25 years and what's happening to them now. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I'm now in possibly some kind of J.J. Abrams, Star Trek, alt-reality Twin Peaks is 
Um, I don't know. Not, Starring not Chris Pine <laughs> as Bobby Briggs. And yeah, I, uh, I, I hear what you're saying. I would just also kind of add to that, that one of the, this, the scene I thought of immediately when I read this actually was the scene between Ben Horn and Beverly, the character played by Ashley Judd, whose mere Ashley Juddness, I always figured there's something we're meant to see with this character to be played by someone who is certainly someone of my generation, like that famous and that much of a star outside of the kind of David Lynch Twin Peaks realm. And there's that great scene where the key arrives back and Ben Horn says, oh, he was here investigating uh, Laura Palmer. And Beverly says, who's Laura Palmer? And I do wonder, with oh, that moment, yeah. with that moment, I love the idea that as much as the death of Laura Palmer was this great big symbol for something, I also thought that scene was great as far as being like, oh, or maybe it wasn't actually. <laughs> like, you know, True. maybe for the town of Twin Peaks, those who knew her were affected, those who were not kind of went on with, with their life in some way. So, you know intrigued by the idea of rewriting history because Frost himself has said that that's not a good thing or at least he doesn't view Cooper's attempt to rewrite history as a good thing. Right, so, right, right. Again, oh, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's well, a lot to throw in here right at the end oh, of the yeah, and, frustrating and To way. be clear, like, the book isn't trying to say that. Both the show, I think, and the book were trying to communicate that any attempt to change history is a bad idea. Yeah. My interpretation of the show was that he wasn't successful. The implication of the book is that he was. Uh, he was successful regardless in either scenario. Bad idea. Yes. yes. Um, but the book does end on one major revelation and clarification. And did you like it? Which is the revelation about Sarah Palmer. I hated this. I uh, hated this. Outright. But I've made peace with it. I hate it, I think, just because in episode eight, we see this young girl. Uh, what happens to her is in some ways like the core primal sin of the Twin Peaks verse. This invasion by the frog cockroach, which seems to symbolize the nuclear bomb and the affairs of the various lodges and all this stuff and its arrival here on Earth. We get uh, Tammy sort of mentioning that Sarah Palmer happened to come from New Mexico. That's where it took place. Sarah Palmer was a little girl there on the night when she describes the weird things happening with the radio and the sleep. We know that is the woodsman. For Frost, I think it was clearly part of the fun of the show maybe was like trying to figure out who that little girl was. And once you figured out that it was Sarah Palmer, what does that mean? I just love the idea that it could be anyone. I kind of love the idea so much that that little girl was pick, pick your symbol and it's her, but also it's just if the spiritual illness of twin peaks is what it does to young women, this is just some core attachment of that to the greater mythological implications of the show. So, you know, Yes, it makes sense that it's Sarah Palmer. Yes, that makes sense why she was pulling off her face. I'm even intrigued about what does that mean for what we learn about the mythology? Does that mean that the frog cockroach was Judy? Does that mean that, weirdly, that was what the coordinates were that, you know, Mr. C was looking for? Like, it activates that part of my brain, but I think I don't like it. I think I wanted to let that mystery be, I guess. But how do you, how do you feel about it? I No, I, I agree with you totally. And again, to come back full circle, yeah, my initial reaction was, oh, I don't like these revelations. And like, <laughs> like I, I hate thinking now of the show this way. And then I prefer my theories. Uh, yeah, I prefer my theories. <laughs> or I just prefer. Audrey is dreaming it. <laughs> or I prefer my ambiguities, you know. And, and then as I said before, 
dropping in and rewatching parts of the show since reading this book, uh, I was just, oh no, th- those ambiguities are still there. Like we could still watch part eight the way that we've always watched it. I mean, even watching it, like again, I don't think about the book at all. I just think about this cinematic experience. And it just uh, made me admire David Lynch's interest in abstractions. He, I don't think he's terribly interested in making that girl Sarah Palmer either. Like he's just much more interested in that she could represent like many possible things. And that's mm-hmm. what he directs and plays to. And I think that's what, that's what resonates with me. And which uh, then again, drives me back to the book and allows me to just enjoy the book as uh, on its own terms uh, versus a thing that ultimately explains Twin Peaks. And so that's the irony, right? Yeah. I bought this book fascinated and wanting it to like <laughs> explain some things or at the very least just get Mark Frost's perspective on how he views things. But then ultimately, uh, what am I trying to say? I lost my What you're trying to say, Jeff, is suddenly there you were in the lodge. Your head was floating. Uh, Mark Frost's head was floating there also. But oh suddenly you were in a prison. Suddenly you were in a prison. <laughs> is that what I mean? And then and the next thing you do, you were back at the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station. But uh, I'm trying to make a, a summary statement. And what I would say is this. Despite all of my complicated feelings about the book, things I liked, things I didn't like, things that baffled me, I would say that I was just left with a positive feeling, especially after reading the book the second time. It was just such a powerful evocation for me of just the experience of the show itself and what an amazing television experience that was and why for me it's the best show of the year. And so I was grateful for reading the book to remind me powerfully of that. I have two final thoughts on that. One is Frost in the sort of epilogue where Tammy is kind of flying back to Philadelphia. Some big implications that even she's maybe losing track of the history and you're left to wonder like, what does she do when she's back in Philadelphia? Does she remember any of this at all? There's a great line where she's talking about kind of what she's learned from Twin Peaks, and she describes the feeling there of being on the set of a play on a strange stage I've wandered onto without knowing why I'm here. The play stumbles ahead, feels like artifice, mistakes, frippery, an endless series of false starts, bad assumptions, all the while shadowed with the constant horror that something unforeseen could drop down on me from above or lurch in from the wings at any moment. I feel like in a way, that's Frost beautifully summing up the Twin Peaks experience totally. to me. Yes, yeah. and, you know, A, the fact that he uses frippery is like A plus work, but also just <laughs> the artifice, the mistakes, the frippery, the false starts. I think he maybe really experiences the show in a similar to the way that we do of just the awareness of the ups and the downs and, yes. and you know, the, the mistakes that have been made. And I love the note that that ends on. And in a way to me, reclaiming the wonder of all of that and the fact that this was not a like meticulously conceived five to six season show where everything went according to plan. And somehow that makes it even more wondrous in my memory. Second thing is, since you're here, Jeff. Oh, yes. I might just have a little present for you. Oh, wow. You got me a present. I did get you a present. Well, and I, and I got you nothing. That's fine. That's I'm fine. so sorry. Jeff, you give me the gift of knowledge. Oh, um, wow. Because <laughs> without you, I probably would have never finished off uh, the original run of Twin Peaks. Uh, 
You may notice that the box has been specially chosen. Yes, um, resembling uh, uh, the, the, the chevron floor of the Red Room. Mm-hmm. Black and, and zebra striped and looks very cool. It's messing with my eyes right now. I went to the Red Room and you carved did? out a corner of it. Yes. Nice, yes. nice. It's been a long 25 years. How's Leland doing, by the way? <laughs> he's, he's not doing too well. <laughs> not, he keeps he, telling me to find Laura, but I don't think that's a good is, idea. <laughs> is Mr. C still on fire? He's still on fire. Yeah. Uh, his, his mood is not improved oh. his mood has decidedly not improved from the last time Still pretty grumpy. <laughs> he's a little grumpy <laughs> oh darren darren has given me a gift of diane the twin peaks tapes of agent cooper the audio cassettes this is the audio cassette that comic Locket himself recorded i believe it came out between seasons but it might have been late in season two it might have been yes Jeff, i just worried you didn't have enough like appendix-style canonical material to draw on for Twin Peaks. Um, Thank you. So I, I hope you have an audio cassette tape that can play this somehow. I, I actually drove the car that has... Uh, I have a car with a cassette player, if you can believe that. Incredible! Yes, okay, yes. we'll expect constant updates then. Yeah, uh, hopefully hopefully there are more mysteries waiting to be solved in there. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. Uh, Jeff, we've come to the end of the journey yet again. Where can people find you? Can you give any updates on anything or, uh... you know, I'm still on Twitter. Okay. Um, I'm not on Twitter as much. Good. Um, good yes, for you, Jeff. I'm, I'm out of the block. Good for lodge. you, Jeff. <laughs> Why don't you brag about it some more? I'm out of the Must block. Must be lodge nice to not be on Twitter. Huh? Um, but you can still find me at, at EW Doc Jensen on Twitter and, uh, working on some things that like, Apparently, my my the people who pay me say that I still can't talk about quite yet. Cool, um, but uh, but but having fun and challenging good cool work. Very cool. Glad to hear that those shady anonymous billionaires that you're working yes, on have you. Uh, put you under a. Uh, well, let's an just NDA. say that, like, yes, I'm. Uh, we are building a, 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 a quite the glass box. <laughs> And we watch it intensely, hoping that something will materialize. Don't you and... dare stop watching that box, <laughs> yes, Jeff. Just, That's when the good stuff happens. Yes, I know. So we're 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 it's it's very exciting, very, very exciting, very good. Uh, we'll look we'll look forward to more of that stuff. I'm at Darren Franich. And hey, you know what? If you have any other thoughts, email us one last time for good measure. Twin Peaks The last time until season four. Uh, which one would happen? Will it happen? Who's to say? Maybe we'll just have another bonus episode somewhere down the road. Uh, listeners, thanks again. Great to hear from you throughout this whole journey. Everybody who is tweeting at us asking our thoughts about this book. Now you have them. We're so, thank you. You have our <laughs> and thoughts. And thank you. Yes, thank you for being curious about our, our thoughts on this. We hope you've enjoyed them. Jeff, always a pleasure. You too, thank you. 